whatever information you're getting, this is the lens which I try to look through, is like whatever information you're getting, think about who's pushing that information and think about why. And just like follow that chain, right? And if you start to just reverse engineer like where things are coming from, you start to see like why and what like why these things are being pushed in these various directions. Like why is cannabis illegal? Why are these things illegal? And if you start to actually research and educate yourself, it's very clear like why. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Emma Beckerly. Emma, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Doing really well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. We're really excited to dive into a bunch of topics today. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really excited to talk to Emma. Really excited to just talk about the cannabis industry as a whole. You know, I'm kind of just here to hold the West Coast down, really. How are you, Brian? I'm doing great. And that's right, Kellen. Let's just let's just ask Emma for the record. Emma, little East Coast, West Coast battle. It's very friendly. If you uh-huh. had to pick an alliance or a location that you currently are, where would you go? <laughs> well, I am I am in New York. I am a born and raised New Yorker. So I do have to skew towards the East Coast, but I started in California, so I do have love for the West Coast. <laughs> for sure. As we do, as New York does, we do love West Coast cannabis. Uh, probably more so than we should. So uh, before we get into it, our listeners, give a little background about yourself and how you got into the cannabis space. Sure. So I have been professionally focusing on cannabis for the last five years. Uh, I would say my interest in drugs, consciousness, mental health has been since I've been a child, though. Growing up, I was very obsessed with those particular topics. And I got into it very young. I think a big reason for that is because it's in my family, addiction, mental health issues. Most of us have some of that. So for me, the way that I process things is I like to understand them. And I just go deep and just want to understand all the topics. So um, that, that motion combined with being raised Catholic, being a born contrarian, and then smashing into the D.A.R.E. program, I had identified a lot of hypocrisy early on with adults and feeling like I was being lied to. (laughs) And so D.A.R.E., interestingly enough, instead of scaring me off drugs, I was like, ooh, they're kind of hyped up about this. I need to know more. I don't believe them. So I started to get really obsessed with actually understanding, and in in kind of like a weird way, actually, in retrospect, because I was young and I was spending all of my allowance money on books on heroin and methamphetamine and cocaine and just trying to understand the chemistry and what it actually did. So I would say that while my career started in more of a traditional industry capacity, marketing, sales, working in travel, then in traditional tech and venture-backed tech, I always was going to end up in the cannabis and psychedelic spaces because I was always, always drawn to drugs and neuroscience and just loving people that are thinking outside of the box. So I got into the space in 2018 after having a pretty solid exit from a tech company, knowing that this was finally my opportunity to really index myself towards something that really spoke to my passion. And... I moved back to New York. I was in Boston at the time, moved back to New York in 2018, which is where I am from. (laughs) And uh, when I got there, because I had the tech background and I had that success, I was looking around and instead of saying, hey, I should open a dispensary or get into the operational side of things, which I have no experience whatsoever, I was looking at technology and I was looking to apply my 
like experience and skill set to the space in a way that was meaningful. And so I aligned with the LeafLink team. They're still around their big marketplace serving retailers and brands and got on the leadership team, worked with them for the first few years. I was really focusing on Colorado and California early days. And so I cut my teeth in the cannabis industry, working for these larger technology companies, LeafLink, Dutchie on the leadership team. And then the last two years, actually, I pivoted and started my own strategy agency to focus on smaller businesses, as well as expand my focus into the burgeoning psychedelic movement as well. So being able to work across multiple clients and help them scale intentionally has allowed me to sort of spread my wings across different focuses, as well as expand into this amazing movement that is the psychedelics movement. I think that's so critical because as we've seen, right, the industry needs more experienced individuals like yourself that are hungry, that are interested in learning, but also you're applicable and you can apply what you've learned from those other companies and help these other consultants get started. So for some of the projects you're working on, is it medical space, the recreational space? Take us through some of the differences. Sure. So it's a bit of everything, <laughs> which is which is the way I like it. I'm I uh, I need very high stimuli <laughs> and need a lot of intensity. So I'm in. I'm I have clients actually in the adult use space. I have um, clients that are focused on the medical space in cannabis specifically. So and then in the psychedelic space, I am squarely focused on the research, biotech, and like the drug trial, mental health space of the psychedelics. So I'd say psychedelics is very much skewed towards the clinical research medical side of things, whereas cannabis historically has actually been very adult use focused. But my clients in cannabis um, actually have been mostly adult use. So one of my favorite clients, House of Puff, I know Christina Lopez was on the podcast uh, wow. a month ago. <laughs> and so, so now while House of Puff is not a licensed entity in cannabis, they are an ancillary brand. They're Latino women run and they're phenomenal. So what I do is I kind of come in as a fractional executive for businesses that are looking to grow, but may not be able to to command the salary requirements or, or essentially put out the salaries that they need to bring in some of this talent. So for me, coming in with House of Puff, running business development, helping them develop partnerships in the markets that they're growing, that's a really fun project, very much focused on the adult use and also beyond because we don't have to just sell to cannabis businesses. We can sell to retailers, hotels, etc., and then I am working on a medically focused project in cannabis, which I love. And again, very near and dear to my heart because I've benefited medically, both mental health and physically from cannabis. And so this one, it's called Acute on Chronic. It's a nursing education platform. And so they partner with dispensaries and bud tenders, as well as hospitals and doctors and do education on the endocannabinoid system and are working with patients actually to provide recommendations about whatever they're trying to solve for, right? So if you're having sleep or anxiety, instead of just talking to a bud tender, and they're awesome, bud tenders are great and so knowledgeable, but it's really wonderful to be able to talk to an actual nurse who can go through your entire medical history, look at your medications and give you recommendations that will actually provide the desired outcomes that you're looking for. So I love that. I love that project as well because you're genuinely helping people heal and get off some of these harsher medications that they may be on. I mean, those are some very diverse clientele that you have, right? So is it like you go out and search for those specific clients or do they find you? Kind of how does that relationship kind of precipitate, yeah. if you will? Yeah, and that's just cannabis. Psychedelics is even <laughs> We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> but, but, so yeah, no, it's a great question. So when I started my agency, 
Um, I'll be honest, I invested 50K of my own money and I just went to every conference that existed. (laughs) Yeah. So I, and like, so that was, that was literally the first thing that I did in the first year that I was operating. I was at every conference, every event. It could have been like a 15 person event in Nowheresville, New Jersey. I was probably there. And so I didn't really have like a mission to necessarily acquire clients. My business development is more talking to people, understanding what their needs are and genuinely seeing if I can help. Because the reality is, and this isn't a knock on other consultants, but consultants kind of get a bad rep because they're... <laughs> you know, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I don't need to explain why. Professional um, services is what we've moved to. <laughs> right. so me though, like I come in as if I'm on the leadership team. So if I'm going to attach my name to a project, I genuinely want to one, believe that I can actually help them. Two, I am not charging people outlandish amounts because one, it's cannabis and people don't have that money. So for me, it's a two-way qualification period, which is it's actually less about them, like me selling them. It's it's kind of a two-way street. And so when I first started, I don't want to make it sound like it's easy because it's not, but I had built up a reputation at LeafLink and Dutchie and I had success previously. I have exits under my belt. I'm tied into a lot of the VCs. So I just know a lot of people. So when I first started my agency, honestly, I started it because people were telling me that they were like, hey, we want to hire you. And I'm like, no, I'm good. And they're like, well, what about give us five hours a week. And I was like, oh, that's a thing I can do? (laughs) And then you'll pay me? So to be totally honest, that was how the whole thing started is I was taking projects on the side and just providing some light consulting. And then it kind of went from there. And then I just got obsessed with both the psychedelics and cannabis spaces. And I just wanted to be at every event and understand all of the different parts of the supply chain, all of the different providers. And I, I met a lot of the people that are out there and still operating. And so then I started to identify the types of projects I wanted to work on and then approach people in that capacity. But now it's honestly, it's a lot of inbounds. So I don't actually do much business development at all anymore, which is nice. Yeah, that's got to be great. And obviously, relationships are so paramount in this space because it's just so yeah. crucial. And one of the things that I think you highlighted that are so important is consultants have a ton of value, especially the ones that can deliver on that value. But we're facing kind of like a trickle-down effect from the economic markets that are hitting pretty much everyone because cash is so key. And while they would love to hire, like, let's say a full-time person, most companies don't have that ability just because they're not sure if they can keep the lights on. So do you think that's kind of misunderstood by some of the industry and more so outside the industry of the trickle-down effect of what's happening with these capital Mm -hmm. markets? 100%. So um, realistically, like I, and I'll be honest, I was at Dutchie for six months. I had actually been talking to them for more than the time that I actually worked there. Um, And so no knock on them, but I saw the writing on the wall. It's not my first rodeo. um, So I saw the writing on the wall of the direction of where the industry was going. And so in some ways people think, oh, going off on your own and starting a consulting agency is like such a risky, brave thing to do. The reality is, it actually was the safest bet for me to make because all of the companies have done massive, massive layoffs since. And to be honest, I am a sick negotiator. So I negotiate high salaries. <laughs> so when you're looking at the, the books that like the, you're, you're taking stock in all of that. But the reality is though, for me, is that exactly what you said, there is massive opportunity now because one these businesses don't want to have like a headcount, adding the headcount with insurance and all of the benefits is a big 
line item to add, but people still need to grow and scale. And my business is like revenue strategy. So it's not a branding agency. It's not marketing. Um, It's very specifically tied to driving revenue, helping operational scaling and preparing for fundraising. So in this climate, in this kind of insane way, and I can't give myself credit for totally making this call, but my services are really valuable because I can come in for three to six months, help get you set up with the CRM, do it really fast. I can do this in my sleep because I've done it so many times. And then I can move on and then I'm off of your books. And so that's the thing too, is that for people that are really looking to bring down their burn rate and preserve runway, these like fractional exec kind of engagements actually are really productive right now because I don't need insurance. I'm working 10, 15 hours a week. I can also manage sales teams in that capacity because again, I've managed large teams full time for these big companies and doing so even 10 hours a week is actually way more effective than if they were bringing in somebody way more junior at the same rate full time is the reality. I can do a lot more with 10 hours than somebody that has like way less experience than I full time. Right. So most of the process is an onboarding. Emma's like hits the ground day one doing six different roles. And then you're like, you're welcome. It's all finished. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm intense and I'm I'm a psycho period. Like so, but I also I have this, I like to get in the weeds, but I, I look at things from a macro standpoint. And I'm also because I am so close to the capital markets and the VC world. I am thinking like an investor. I actually underwrite my clients before they come on. And so I am thinking about things via the lens of what is your exit? What are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to position yourself for investors? Are you trying to drive traction? And these are always questions up front is you have to talk to the founder about where are you actually trying to go? And is it is it acquisition? Is it fundraising? Is it that you just want to figure out how to make money and not deal with begging people for money, right? So it really depends on where folks are trying to go. But regardless of where they're trying to go, I can plug in and help accelerate their motion. So is it kind of like a one size fits all? doesn't matter what the direction is, but you can come in and customize your skill set to kind of help them accomplish their goals, correct? Yeah, I've done a lot of jobs, actually. You know what my biggest challenge is, honestly, is staying in the lane (laughs) that I signed the agreement for. (laughs) So because I've done marketing, I've run engineering teams, like I've run product and sales and account management. So and this is why like, I love the House of Puff engagement, because it's very, very specific, right? Like, because I could come in and do a whole bunch of random things. But when it's a very specific engagement, and I've gotten better as I've evolved in the space in being very specific about what is the output put that you're getting because I'm a see like see something say something kind of person. So if I'm like, ah, I don't like your website, if even if I have nothing to do with the marketing, it's hard for me to like keep my mouth shut. So I've had to train myself to say, like, look, it's not your business. You're hired for this very specific thing. Focus on that. And it's actually because I'm my own scope creep. The clients are amazing. I creep myself. <laughs> Not my monkey, not my circus, right? <laughs> right. I, I, I think everyone's circus is my circus. Yeah. It's easier said than done. That's what I was going to say, Callum. Like, it's not, it's not an easy feat, especially for some of the things that we've done where we're like, well, it's easy for us to just quickly fix this. So Emma, I got a challenge for you is obviously New York is taking their, their time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to know, in your opinion, A, are they doing well? And B, can you fix it? <laughs> can I fix it? Oh, no. Um, um, So look, what I will say is, so New York, 
is my place. It's my home. And I have been disappointed. I have been really disappointed in the rollout because just as a patient, right? Like I want access to to cannabis. I want people to have more access to cannabis. And the longer this takes, obviously, the longer the illegal illicit market continues to proliferate. So the reality is, is that like, no, it's not been a success at all. And I'm disappointed in how it's gone. I think we are sacrificing good for perfect in a lot of ways. But I also think that there is a lot of it's all there's all good intention, right? And I will say is that I I work with and speak with a lot of these licensees, prospective licensees, and they're incredible, incredible human beings. And so for me, when I think about the slowness of the New York rollout, and let's be let's be clear, New Jersey's also got its issues too, right? So like, <laughs> so it's not we're we're nothing's perfect, but New York, in terms of how slow it's gone, it's really really going to hurt the licensees the most and the patients, and so that's what's really frustrating for me. I think I'm an outcomes person, so when I look at some of the solutions that are being put forth to try to solve, really getting it handle on the illicit market, I do have a bit of an eye roll response. Because if you know New York City, I I grew up outside the city. I've been going to Canal Street to get fake Louis. Not anymore, because I'm a grown up. But (laughs) (laughs) but in high school, you bet your ass I was there. And guess what? The guy that I was buying my crappy bootlegs from, he's still there. So the reality is, is that the illicit market is it's, it's out of the bag. And I think trying to some of the moves that are being made right now to sort of like shut it down, I get their scare tactics, but I actually don't think it's going to be effective. I don't think you're going to put these illicit shops back in the box, no matter what you do. Because if you look at New York and you look at the history of it, it is filled with, and this is why I love it, hustlers. And they're going to keep hustling and they will figure out how to make money and they will keep moving. Um, And so for me, I think you got to get creative. I think we really need to think fully, fully outside the box and look at New York as its own thing. And um, I have thoughts on things that you could do to at least get more tax money in now, (laughs) which is figuring out how to maybe get some of these illicit guys to start, I don't know, paying money and get, I don't know, right? So like, there's a lot of different things that I think we could do differently. Can I solve the New York problem? Absolutely not. (laughs) There's a lot of really smart, smart people that are working on this. And I think, like I said, I think there's really good intention. Um, But yeah, it's, it's super frustrating. And the people that are going to be hurt the most are the licensees and patients are stuck buying crappy weed from bodegas or California weed from bodegas. And that's good. <laughs> like that is good <laughs> for cannabis. And so, and the reality is and on this flip side, because I look at cannabis from a macro standpoint. So the West Coast, East Coast thing, I think about cannabis in a much more holistic fashion. And so California has my heart. That's where I started. And it was really hard in 2018 to do business in California. It's near impossible now. So in this way, it's hard for me to get angry at some of these brands that are pumping their stuff into the New York market because the government, it's made it so hard to actually be successful in this business. So I think it's slightly hypocritical to knock people that are just trying to survive and who've been operating for as long as we have. And the reality is, is a lot of the people that are in these spaces, we've been consuming cannabis outside the law since we've been kids. So we've all been 
breaking the law and I'm just not sold that the law is correct. And so that's kind of where I'm at with New York is that there's this uh, post on Instagram where you see this guy and he's putting a big sign on one of these illicit shops. And I get that it's a scare tactic, but in some capacity, the optics of it throw me off because everybody kind of comes from the legacy market as consumers or operators. And yes, these guys are illicit. Yes, they're bodegas. Yes, they're skirting the rules. Um, And it sucks for the licensed dispensaries. But it's also how this industry has existed for all time. So um, I think that there's just... I think people are getting a little bit stuck in the weeds. And I think we have to lift up and look at it and think... And I'll almost like start from scratch and say, how do we kind of think about this in a completely different way than we have been? Yeah, and I think that at the end of the day, like it's everyone's livelihood. Like a lot of people in California and New York have like poured all of their capital and financials and everything into this industry. And then the rules have just, it was a great opportunity. And all of a sudden the rules have placed them in a position where like it's either shut down and like you don't eat or you have to make decisions, right? To actually put food on the table. So it's just, it's a, they're between a rock and a hard place, unfortunately. Really challenging. Yeah, it's a really tough one. And there's amazing... And the reality is, is like, and I go to the legal shops because I work with a lot of them and they're amazing. They're amazing. Love them. But I also have, and I'm going to be honest, I have an amazing legacy provider that delivers all throughout Brooklyn. And they do within 15 minutes and they've got great cannabis and they grow it themselves. And so I think actually in the long run, you're going to be dealing like those guys, like they, they've got it. They've got a whole infrastructure that they have going right now. And in a way, like I do have loyalty to them. They're really good human beings that make really quality products. So it's this kind of push and pull. Like you said, it's a rock and a hard place. Like I struggle because truth be told, I am going to legal dispensaries. I'm going to Jersey dispensaries and New York dispensaries, but I'm also still going to my legacy dealer as well. And I'm trying to spread my money across all of these different spaces. But that's just the reality that we're in right now. I mean, the relationship you have with that legacy dealer is the same relationship everyone's trying to cultivate with bud tenders, right? So it's like, and that's trust. You've known him for how many years? And it's he's never let you down, right? So it makes complete sense. Correct. You got it. I I think the people who struggle the most are exactly like you said, Emma, is like the consumers, because I've got friends who are interested in trying cannabis again for the first time. Maybe they (laughs) they had it in college and they took some time off and they go into these stores and they don't know, right? They're buying all these other products and there's just not that type of relationship because their butt tenders aren't there. They're buying it from the bodega. They're they're taking things. And that's the part for me, that's the frustration is, yes, you set up these businesses, you put them through all these rigorous regulations and all these hurdles to jump through. They finally do it. And consumers yeah. can't tell the difference. And how, how that happens or what we can do to accelerate the opening, I, I'm not even sure how we could do that in order to get to the point where consumers can know the difference and we can kind of reward people who are doing, thing, doing it the right way. It's like an education thing, but you're right. This is where this stuff does hurt us potentially because the reality is, and like, look, at the end of the day, even in the licensed market, you know, you'll get mold and weed and like things aren't, it's like, you know, whatever. Um, Quality control across the board could be better anywhere. Again, say that again. (laughs) (laughs) But the reality is though, is that like, like at the end of the day, we are still we're still kind of just getting things started in New York. And so you're right. The consumers are so confused. They have no idea what's going on. Uh, And 
honestly, even people that are in the industry that aren't paying as much attention to New York and they come in for like an MJ Unpacked, they're like, well, there's weed everywhere. And you're like, well, (laughs) I I won't, I won't name the names, but I'm like, I didn't know X was sold in New York. I'm like, oh, (laughs) not legally. Um, (laughs) But, but yeah, so I think that that's been, that's confusing. I also like, I get way more nervous, particularly around like the, the concentrates and like the vape cartridges and stuff like that too, because then you start to get into like the, you don't know what's in it and it can get gross. So like that's, those are like just public health things that I start to get concerned about. Um, But again, like we're also leaving a ridiculous amount of tax money on the table and guess what? The state could really use it. That's also as a taxpayer and as a person that lives in New York, I'm like, what the hell guys? (laughs) So yeah, that's my my stance on New York. (laughs) One of the challenges also is like the line between medical and recreational is like so thin and I only hope that over time, maybe we can accelerate research as well so that we can really uncover some of these medicinal benefits. So from your standpoint, are we keeping up to where we need to with research or is there ways you think we can do a better job? No, we are not. (laughs) Um, And I, I will say the United States, as it relates to cannabis research, is trailing. Like we may never be able to catch up. And the thing is, is that the United States has historically, we've led the way. We've we've led, we've set pace when it comes to scientific research, to drug development, et cetera. And when it comes to cannabis, we are still very, very behind the time. So if you look at Israel, you look at even Australia, there's amazing work being done in and around cannabis. And the United States is far, far behind. And actually one of the reasons for that is if you look, And it's gotten better over the last two years. But up until the last few years, there was one DEA-approved cultivator in the country that could provide cannabis for research purposes. That was the University of Mississippi. And if you know anything about what that cannabis was and is that's coming out of there, not to be a jerk, but it's trash. And any of the research scientists that have been working with it and have tested it will say that. <laughs> and it's it's published. You can find this online. This isn't secret. And so the reality is, is that when we're talking about research trials, right? And so for example, uh, Dr. Sue Sisley, who is with the um, Scottsdale Research Institute, she is a pioneer. She actually sued the DEA and won. She's a badass. And so I, I encourage all the listeners, if you've not heard of Dr. Sue Sisley, to do a little Google and check her out. Um, there's a lot on there. But she has actually done research trials with the University of Mississippi Cannabis. And the reality is, is in testing, there's, it's moldy, but it's also, it's, it's really mixed together with a lot of other plant material. And a part of the issue is that, and you both know this very well, is that one of the things that they do is that they use the dosing based on weight, right? So like the, like, so it's like 1.3 grams a day of cannabis for this research trial. You, you both are versed in the space, but you know that weight of cannabis has nothing to do with the effect. Like it had the terpene profile, like all of these different things within the plant are what we need to be paying attention to. There's over like 300 compounds in cannabis that need to be researched and studied. So you can't do an effective research study if you have really not tested and kind of trash weed because the effects of it are going to be so much different than if you were actually using real world cannabis that exists today. So you can, like you can get better cannabis in a medical dispensary in an adult use dispensary than you can get from the University of Mississippi that was contributing to this particular trial. Now we have nine companies now that are able to cultivate, manufacture cannabis for research purposes now. So that has, we have increased that. 
um, I believe. And then I think last month or even last few weeks, there's now um, Uruguay is going to potentially be exporting uh, medical cannabis to the United States for research purposes. So that's good because they've been leading the pack as it relates to the medical structure on the international space. So we are making very, very small moves. But I would say overall, there is really not a lot of studies behind cannabis. And that is a major miss because the medicinal benefits of this plant, we know anecdotally, are massive. And so we need to put science behind it because we need a path to pharmaceuticals. And I know that that's like a dirty word, but the reality is, is that we can have an adult use market. We can have even like a caregiver medical market like we have now, but it's such a waste not to figure out how to get like all of these amazing, beautiful plant benefits from cannabis injected into the population via the traditional medical system as well. And we need to educate our doctors and our nurses to be able to speak about cannabis and the contraindications that various medications may have with all of these things. Anesthesia, for example, if you're a, a, like a consistent cannabis user, you, the dosing for anesthesia, and I've personally actually been, I've had this issue, but you need to talk to your medical doctors about your cannabis use because it will affect how anesthesia is it affects you. You need to up the dose size. It's just a truth. And so a lot of doctors though, don't even know this. And that's that to me, as cannabis becomes more available, we need to um, have more education behind it. But the reality is, if you look at doctors and you look at how they're getting their information, it always follows the science. They're not going to listen to anecdotes, at least not to generalize doctors, but generally, like more often than not, there is sort of a line that they're staying within because there's liability and malpractice and things like that that they're concerned about. Yeah, and with doctors, I think at the end of the day, it's not the doctors, it's the system that doctors got educated under. And that system in the United States doesn't recognize the endocannabinoid system, right? So they don't even teach it in med school. So then like, you know what I mean? So I think that's like the root of the problem on top of the fact that there's no governmental funding for like fundamental research that universities kind of undertake throughout our like research system that's been designed for us to lead. So there's a, a myriad of different issues within the, the research world of cannabis, in my opinion, at least. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't even scratched the surface. The issue is, is that we need a lot of money. <laughs> so yes. we need to print it. Like- Just print it. <laughs> Quantitative easing, right? Oh my gosh, you're such a problem solver, Brian. Wow. Fire up the machines. I love how solutions oriented you are. Can you print me some money while you're at it? That's funny. I mean, I'm curious though, like, like we we see more states coming online for medical purpose. We just saw Alabama making moves. So obviously all the states are coming, but there's someone in DC has to be thinking, hey. All these states are making moving forward for medical purpose. Shouldn't we understand more about the nuances of this plan? Obviously, the science is expensive, but it also takes time. And I'm wondering how we can incentivize our doctors, research to accelerate the growth because there's going to be a massive learning curve. And then there's going to be needs to be a massive educational period. So like, I'm not sure how we can incentivize the speeding up of this process. <laughs> and I think about I think about incentives too much literally all the time because it it's it's everything's everything is backwards in our country. Um actually, but funny you bring that up because actually Dr. Sue Sisley, who I mentioned earlier, as well as Rick Doblin, who runs MAPS, which is doing the phase three MDMA PTSD trials, they're actually in DC today meeting with the FDA. Um, and a uh, big reason for that is because uh, Sue Sisley, she's going into phase two with this PTSD trial with veterans. There were really solid 
interest points in her phase one study, but we need a lot more information to actually move things forward. So she's, it got paused. Um, and so she's meeting with the FDA today to push that forward. And this is where I think cannabis can take some notes from psychedelics. However, we're still very early in the psychedelic space, but it's about, there is a positioning thing, right? And unfortunately, cannabis has somehow actually a worse stigma. And I think it's racially driven, of course, but the stigma behind cannabis and the medicinal use of it is very different than even psychedelics. There's a lot of people that don't know about psychedelics and may think like, oh, they just think about Timothy Leary and you know the acid test and all of that. But the reality is, is the way in which psychedelics has been positioned, and this is a huge thanks to Rick Doblin and the MAPS organization who's been working on this for over 30 years, but focusing on a bipartisan issue like veteran suicide and PTSD you cannot argue that that is a problem that needs to be solved for. And so psychedelics has done a really good job. Psychedelics, the industry and the people that are in it have done a really good job at focusing in on the specific issues that one, need to be solved because it's egregious and completely embarrassing for our country. But the reality is, is that when you sit in front of a policymaker and you're telling them, wait, actually that 22 a day uh, suicide rate that we were talking about, it's actually more like 40 plus every single day of veterans that are killing themselves. That doesn't include active. That doesn't include how many are homeless and addicted to drugs and haven't killed themselves. So the way in which we treat our armed service people is egregious. And when you sit with policymakers, they cannot look away from that. You can't say that you don't want to figure out a better solution for our veterans, right? So that's where I do think that um, psychedelics has done a good job in terms of the positioning, right? And and now I'm a decrim girl. I'm all about decriminalization of like anything, um, <laughs> like lightweight libertarian, maybe um, in that capacity. But in general, though, the medical focus, right? And 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 having it be in a container, whereas Rick Doblin is pushing not MDMA as a prescription; it's MDMA assisted therapy, right? And so even in Oregon with the psilocybin program they have right now, which has issues, but that's in a container. You're with a facilitator and you're taking mushrooms in a container. The public is a lot more comfortable with that than say a mushroom dispensary, right? So that's, I think, and now I'm not saying that we shouldn't have cannabis dispensaries. We should have way more of those than we have liquor stores. But the reality is, is that I think is why I just think that the messaging behind cannabis has gotten a little bit lost along the way. And I think if we had focused a little bit more on the medical side, it could have potentially changed some of the public thinking behind it. But the reality is, is that you need a ton of money. You need so much, you need hundreds of millions of dollars, not just five to 10 millions. And I'm saying like just five to 10, like it's nothing, but you need hundreds of millions of dollars to get through phase one, phase two, phase three trials. So cannabis doesn't have money like that. And the reality is too, if you look at even Colorado, you look at the rates of opiate abuse, and I would imagine Big Pharma probably would be kind of fearful of that because the truth is I'm not on any prescription medication, but I smoke cannabis every night. That's been my medicine. And guess what? I'm not paying a single pharmaceutical company for that. So I do think there's also macro influences that probably aren't keen on some of those things. Yeah, they say it takes $1 billion to get like one single API through a clinical trial, right? And cannabis has 400. So like we're looking at like $400 billion, right? 
overwhelming. It's not it's not a little amount of money. You I really know. need to get that machine printed. I from. still provided a solution, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. No, that that actually solves like most of our problems, honestly. We, uh, <laughs> we just keep doing it. So, like, what's the big deal? So, Emma, for our listeners who are hearing psychedelics, right? Maybe you're newer to the space and they're wondering, hey, like, is it one product? Is it different types? Can you give us like a high-level overview? So, like, yep. I'm just assuming like the person's like, Emma, like I took mushrooms in college, like I tripped for like, can you get the differences so that people understand? Totally. So there's the classic psychedelics, which people are aware of. There's actually, and the reality is, is that there are hundreds and hundreds of plants out there that are psychoactive, right? We focus on a few and the ones that are on schedule one are there for political and racial purposes. So the ones that we know about that everyone's up in arms about all the time are the ones that have been placed on schedule one for purposes that don't actually have to do with what they actually are. It's more about the people using them because we love free speech, uh, but um, we also will penalize you if you don't say the things that we like. And how do we do that? We make your drugs legal. So that's that's the reality. And so for me, um, with psychedelics, the ones that we think about when you hear about psychedelics, particularly in the space and you hear it on the news and all of that, there's a number of classic psychedelics. It's Mushrooms, which is psilocybin and psilocin, those are sort of the core compounds there. So magic mushrooms, this is probably most people will have interacted with mushrooms, LSD, as well as maybe ecstasy slash MDMA at some point, right? Um, There's all different classes though. And so LSD, psilocybin, the mushrooms, as well as like an ayahuasca, DMT, and then going even further, the toad, you'll hear Mike Tyson talk about that. The core compound there is 5-MeO. There's all of these different psychedelics that are found naturally, but then there's also synthetic like LSD and MDMA. And there, when we talk about psychedelics, it's kind of this umbrella term, quite frankly. And it's not specific and they're all very different. And I think it is important to distinguish between the classic psychedelics. And then, like I said, there are hundreds of psychoactive plants. Plus, there's a ton of work being done right now where people are synthesizing new molecules and new compounds that have varying effects. Um, But the classic ones would be LSD, psilocybin, those two. And those are really, those are like true psychedelics. Ayahuasca, true psychedelic. When you think about MDMA, ecstasy, uh, molly, some people will have heard it called, that's an empathogen. So that's more of a heart opener. You can get, and really what psychedelics do is there's this neuroplastic effect that they have. And so it creates what we call neurogenesis, but it actually creates new neural connections. And so the reason why psychedelics are so unbelievably valuable, but also kind of broad and mysterious is because our brains are energy eaters. They they use up so much energy in our body just thinking. And so what our brains are constantly trying to do is create routines and patterns and really trying to identify patterns. It's all about trying to save time and efficiency, right? Why? (laughs) And preserve energy. So that's why when you get fast food, your body's like, oh yeah, I'm going to eat all the sugar. I'm going to eat all the... So we really are beasts, right? We really are just like natural beasts. And so what psychedelics do though, is that as we progress through our life as a kid, right? We have this very plastic thinking where we're so creative and imaginative and everything's possible. <laughs> and, and, and as we become adults and as we move forward, our brains are doing their job, which is they are creating patterns. And if you get punched in the face or you have some kind of trauma, 
your brain's like, ooh, that's a bad thing. All right, this is how we're going to react. And it's constantly boxing things together. What psychedelics do is they create new neural connections. So what they do is they kind of break out of those rigid thought patterns that develop over time, which are positive in terms of energy. But the reality is, is they can be detrimental to creativity, but also you put things on a shelf and that can actually have physical effects long-term if you're not dealing with trauma that hasn't been dealt with, right? So psychedelics shake it up a little bit. And via these new neural connections, you start to think about things in a different way. And you start to look at things perhaps a little bit differently than you had before. There's so much we still need to learn about it. But psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca, 5-MeO-DMT, those are all things that create neuroplasticity. MDMA is an empathogen, so it's a heart opener. There is some neuroplastic effects. But why it's so valuable in the PTSD um, therapy is that what it does, and this is why they're just talk therapy alone is sometimes not that effective for things like PTSD. And it is, but sometimes it can be actually re-traumatizing because when you are revisiting these awful things that happen to you, even just talking about it, even just thinking about it can cause more trauma. And particularly somebody that is already highly traumatized, it's really challenging. What MDMA can do, and I've watched sessions of, of veterans going through these um, these trials, and you, you can actually look at the trauma, but do so under the shield of MDMA, and you can do so without re-traumatizing yourself. So it's actually a really beautiful experience because it allows you to revisit these things, deal with it, but not get punched in the face again by the trauma. And that's where MDMA is really interesting. Then what I will say is that ketamine is something that gets bucketed in to the psychedelic sort of vernacular. Ketamine is not a psychedelic. Ketamine is an anesthetic. It's one of the safest anesthetics that is out there. Ketamine is actually, you can take ketamine legally in the United States because it's not schedule one because it, there's medical value. It's used in war. Actually, it's, it's a, because it is the safest anesthetic, they use it on the battlefield for soldiers. And so, but they, we figured out that ketamine at certain doses can cause these psychoactive, psychedelic experiences where there is a bit of plasticity and people's lives have been saved by ketamine. That being said, ketamine has gotten a little bit out of control. And as it goes with anything, and you guys know this with like Delta 8 and all this stuff, is that whenever there's something that has a bit of a loophole, you're going to get people jumping on and just trying to make money. So my caution to anyone that's exploring ketamine is just to make sure you do your research. You know, just make sure you're looking into the clinic, make sure you're looking at reviews, make sure you understand who the clinicians are, what their experience is, and be careful because... There's a lot of people that are opportunistic and kind of jumping on the bandwagon. But ketamine is also really magical in a lot of ways, but it's also not a typical psychedelic. It's technically an anesthetic. Is it used for PTSD as well? Yes. So, um, and yes, and I have spoken with countless, countless veterans and first responders where they were incredibly suicidal and had ketamine sessions and it saved their lives. So absolutely. It's with a therapist, right? The same kind of thing with an MDA. Got it. Yeah. So, and it's not, so ketamine is different than MDMA. So it's not that heart opener. You're actually like in the zone. Um, I've actually never done ketamine. So I've never, or recreational either. So like, I don't, I can't even like begin to fathom what a K-hole feels like. But basically ketamine is, <laughs> I've heard that. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> you're 
you're like, I know. I have a friend. (laughs) I know someone. (laughs) But like, so the reality is with ketamine is you're not, it's not that you're necessarily like talking through things the way that you are with, with MDMA. You really are like, you've got the, like the mask on in a lot of cases, you've got music and it's actually, it looks a little bit more like a psilocybin facilitated session because it's a lot more internal. Ketamine is distributed. There's multiple ways that you can, um, Take ketamine, it's intramuscular, intravenous, or sublingual. A lot of the at-home telehealth ketamine will be doing the sublingual as well, but they all work pretty well. But the intramuscular, intravenous, that's happening in an actual clinic. So kind of taking that one step further for someone who's like interested, he's never experienced psychedelics, wants to experiment it, doesn't want to hallucinate. Is there expectations or type of product that you can share just to guide them with all those differences that one they can consider set themselves up for a positive experience? Yeah. So ketamine is legally available right now in the United States. You will probably hallucinate a little bit or, and it depends, right? It totally depends on dosing and everyone's different, but there is the potential to hallucinate on ketamine. That's something that you want to avoid. That's something that you should talk to the provider about and just see like, I want to keep it at a lower dose. But the reality is that there are certain threshold doses that do like that you need to get to, to actually have the benefit. Otherwise it's just sort of an anesthesia, but as it relates to legal consumption of psychedelics in the United States today, there is in Oregon, they have facilitator, they have a model where you can go and take psilocybin with a facilitator. Um, you can take ketamine in various clinics all over the country, whatever state you're in, there's probably ketamine clinics that you can look at. But again, I caution and just make sure you do your research. And then legally there are retreats all over the world. And again, talking about full legal, there's also a very, very robust burgeoning underground world of psychedelics that exists across the entire United States, of course. um, And that's continuing to grow. There's professional organizations that people... And this would be, I think, if you're interested in psychedelics and you've never tried psychedelics, my advice is start researching, start reading, start educating yourself. This is not like a typical pharmaceutical. This is not like going and getting Adderall or an SSR, like nothing like that. It's something that you need to really do your research and you need to participate. It's not something you take and then your depression's gone and now you're all fine. That could potentially happen, but it requires participation. I have, I went through a two-year protocol of doing deep dose self-guided mushroom trips literally specifically for mental health purposes over two years, every three to four months, the amount of work I did in between was massive. Like, and thank you COVID because it gave me time and space to actually do that. But even then I probably could have used a facilitator to support me at certain points. Like it can be a little bit disruptive. It can resurface things that you're not sure about. So there's retreats all over the world, but again, same caution goes for um, the ketamine clinics, which is just do your research and just make sure that if you're going to be going to a retreat, it's with a it's it's with an organization that has some accreditation behind it. For example, Beckley Retreats is in Jamaica. Um, Evolution Retreats is another one in Jamaica. They do really incredible work with psilocybin, but they're also affiliated with different research and there's there's science and actual stuff behind it. So that's something that I would say is that there's a lot of options to participate in psychedelics, but it's really on the individual to do a ton of research up front. And there's a lot of resources available. But um, the biggest thing that you can do is just find a local psychedelic like gathering organization. Most cities have 
psychedelic or like community organizations where just you can just start talking to people and just start sort of seeing what the vibe is and see what what what's calling you really. Um, I have been in psychedelics for a few years now. I have taken psychedelics throughout my adult life, but I've also only really really done mushrooms. I still have not taken the plunge into some of the other psychedelics specifically for the reason that I haven't been called to it just yet. And I'm also very, very careful about who I'm with when I'm taking these molecules. So like even me who like is mainlining this shit every day, I am also still proceeding with some level of caution because we don't know a lot. You know, we don't know a lot. And they're very powerful compounds, right? They're like, very powerful. They're very powerful. Oh, the other the other legal container that exists in the United States, I can't believe I didn't think about this because I'm working on a project on one right now, but is religious organizations. So the Religious Freedom Act, the RFA, um, allows in like the, the Rastafarian church, there's um, ayahuasca churches as well. Um, but there's actually churches now all over the place with psychedelics where you can actually... Um, provides some psychedelics as a sacrament. And there's actually a church group in San Diego that I work with that's run by former Navy SEALs. And they're providing 5-MEO as a sacrament for in-crisis veterans. Again, these are not regulated organizations necessarily. So if you are participating in psychedelics in an unregulated fashion, which is most of the ways in which you can participate, it's like you proceed with caution and it's sort of like at your own risk. But um, I do encourage exploration, but you also need to go in recognizing that this is still very new and we don't know a lot. And even with microdosing, there's a lot we don't know. And I think there's a lot of assumptions being made and it's being positioned as a panacea when I think that is certainly not the case. That's exactly what I wanted to get into because first off, I would assume most are not doing the research, right? And if you're hesitant on some of those other areas, I can only imagine where others are just making blind guesses. I have a friend in particular who who told me he was battling some depression and started mm-hmm. microdosing mushrooms and said, hey, it's really helped me. Do you want to try it? And I want to just ask him like, hey, like, you think about this at all? Like, so for our listeners who don't know what microdosing is or, or how that kind of works, can you kind of just take us through the, the basics? Sure. So when we talk about microdosing, um, microdosing is usually a 10th or a 20th of like a trip level dose, right? So, and usually when we're, t- when you hear people talking about microdosing today, it's, it's usually mushrooms. It's usually psilocybin that they're talking about. However, um, there was like microdosing LSD. You see, we heard actually quite a bit of hype around that within Silicon Valley, um, and sort of like the tech guys as well. So there's microdosing LSD, but mostly when you hear people talking about microdosing, it is specifically tied to mushrooms. And so I actually started a microdose protocol at the beginning of the pandemic because I have some issues with uh, like stillness. I like a lot of stimulation, as I said earlier. <laughs> so when the pandemic hit, I was like, oh no, what am I going to do? And so um, microdosing usually, and there's a bunch of different protocols. Paul Stamets, who is a renowned mycologist um, for anybody that wants to learn more about mushrooms, watch Fantastic Fungi on Netflix. It is spectacular, spectacular, um, genuinely. And so Paul Stamets is in that, but he is he is a trailblazing mycologist. He's incredible. He has a, he has a protocol that he follows um, and suggests. And there's another gentleman, James Fadiman, who wrote Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. Again, I suggest you're like anyone interested should get that because that was actually a book that I read early on in my journey. Um, but they both have different protocols. And usually what the protocol consists of, it's like every third day or four days on, three days off. So 
The idea with microdosing is that you are taking a subperceptual, meaning you are not feeling any type of psychoactive effect. No, if you feel any psychoactive effect, if you feel weird, then you took too much. And so you don't want to feel really like, you don't really want to feel anything. And CBD, I think, is a good comp because CBD, if you take it in, sometimes if you take too much CBD, you're like a puddle on the couch. But CBD, for the most part, is good CBD, to be clear, too, because there's a lot of trash. Most of it's trash. Um, But actual, like, really good CBD, like, again, you're getting benefits, but you're not necessarily feeling any sort of psychoactive element. And so microdosing with psilocybin specifically, usually you're looking at 0.1 to 0.2 grams, right? 0.1 is usually the go-to. And so that usually, and again, a trip dose usually starts around two to two and a half grams. So again, you're looking at that 0.1, it's the 20th of a trip dose. Now, the reality with microdosing is I was microdosing for a few years and I was doing a hybrid of the James Fadiman and Paul Stamets protocol where I do every third day, I would take a microdose capsule. Um, and that was good for a while. And then, and then it wasn't. Um, and, I, and I actually haven't talked about this with anybody because I just haven't yet. And I, I'm still trying to sort of like synthesize my thoughts around it. But I actually haven't really microdosed since since January. I did a big mushroom trip January 1st of this year, my largest to date. And coming out of that, and you get all these insights, um, coming out of that, it was like, you're good on mushrooms for a while, quit the microdosing. And so um, Alan Watts has this great quote where it's like, um, if the phone isn't ringing, or I forget exactly what it is, but something about hanging up the phone. Like if you're not, if it's not ringing, like hang up the phone, or if you're not getting a call, hang up the phone. And that's the truth with psychedelics. And I think in this way, the pharmaceutical industry has trained us to think that you take something and then you take it in perpetuity. And the reality is, if it works, you should be able to not take it anymore. The goal should be not to be dependent. And so the reality is, I wasn't making the call. I I was, but it was via, I needed help from the mushrooms and the neuroplasticity and all this stuff. But the reality was, is I was, I was, it was overstaying my welcome. I didn't need to be taking it anymore. It helped me with light depression during the pandemic. I put some lion's mane and cordyceps and nerded out on some of that stuff. So it helped with some like focus type things. But the reality is, and I still think this to be true, is that if you have trauma and you haven't dealt with some stuff, I think microdosing consistently for a long, for even a short period of time, but a long period of time has the potential to stir some stuff up. So if you are not prepared and you do not have space to actually deal with your shit, then I don't suggest participating in psychedelics at all is the reality is that you need to have it's it's mysterious with the neuroplastic events and you just need some space to synthesize what comes up. It can be incredibly valuable, but if you are go, 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 and you just want it to be a supplement that you take that just you take and forget, I don't know. I think that I think that that's probably something that I wouldn't suggest to everybody. Now, what I will say is that there are a lot of people that say microdosing has, they, they do it all the time and it's changed their lives. And I, I personally have benefited from it. But um, I, I think in general, I think we should all be proceeding with some level of caution. I, I just genuinely think that's go low and slow. I feel that way with cannabis too, honestly. Brian, you were talking about your friend who's like going to a dispensary and hasn't tried cannabis in a long time. I have a story with a friend who went to a New Jersey dispensary, bought some little pre-rolls. We know the brand and literally took two puffs and he was 
on his ass, right? Because he hasn't smoked cannabis since high school and that was trash weed. So like in, with everything that affects your brain, low and slow. And so that would be my suggestion in general as well is that with microdosing, I think you should, I recommend it's a good way to try, but pay attention. And if you feel like anything is coming up that's disruptive, then I would suggest stopping. As a wise soul once told me, if you microdose multiple times during the day, that's just called taking the drug. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, actually, and you know what's funny? A friend of mine, literally, literally this morning, a friend of mine, I won't name who, she's in the industry, but um, she texted me and she's like, I microdose, and it wasn't a microdose. <laughs> so that's the other thing is that if you're buying, like, there's not a lot of uniformity to the dosing. So you kind of have to trust. And if you're taking it in the morning, which is suggested, uh, and you take it and it's a little bit more than you were expecting, it could be slightly disruptive to your day, not the end of the world, but you could be on a Zoom call and be like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? So <laughs> <laughs> let's slightly switch gears to uh, a rapid fire. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh gosh. Okay. True or false? All drugs should be researched for medicinal purposes. All drugs? I, 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 I can't, I can't agree to all. Well, I'm all about research. My worry is when I say all is that there's a prioritization <laughs> issue. <laughs> so, so I, I want to research everything. I would love to have everything be researched. Also, like there's so many amazing botanicals that we never even talk about that should be researched. There's also um, like things like kava that are now like blatantly on the market and kratom and all this stuff that like is just out there because it's just not regulated that I think is problematic and needs to be researched. So yes, I think everything should be researched. I think every plant that exists probably has some level of medicinal capacity if we had the time to research it. I don't like all statements, but I would say true. But you'll not <laughs> like this next one. True or false, all drugs <laughs> should be legalized for adult use. I okay, so this I don't know. This might be an unpopular. Uh, I said earlier, You're a decrim I'm a girl. I'm a decrim girl. I think that uh, the, I I genuinely my my thing is that I think that people should not be put in prison for taking anything for putting like making decisions. And and again, it's like I won't go into like the pro choice thing, but in general, I need the government to get out of our bodies. Like, stay away. I'm not into it. However, do I think that there should be cocaine dispensaries? Uh, probably not, you know? Um, so I think that it's really on the user side that I do think that everything should be de decriminalized. We should not be penalizing people for medicating themselves in whatever capacity that they should. I think that there's probably a difference in a fentanyl dealer versus a legacy cannabis or mushroom dealer. Those are two very different things, in my opinion. And I do think that somebody that is selling fentanyl and stuff like that. Yeah, throw those guys in prison. I don't care, you know? So um, that's kind of, it's, it's sort of a complicated question. Under the These radar. These are a short answer to impulses. I'm like anti anything that's like binary. I'm like everything. The words I've are, done too many psychedelics. The so words I'm, are intended well. to be not helpful. <laughs> Under the radar portion of the cannabis industry, you think more entrepreneurs are overlooking? I mean, I think there's a lot of amazing use for hemp. This is like a Merida capital thing with the hemp crete. <laughs> <Take a mix. laughs> 
so, so like, I'm not going to lie, like the boring sides of like that, like, cause that's the reality is that like right now, like it's sexy to have a dispensary and a cultivation and create a brand and all of that stuff. But like the boring stuff is how you make like long-term money. Right. And like, so, so I think there's that, um, I think there's a lot of things in that realm that I think could be explored more. And like I said before, the de-prescribing and just the actual research medical side of things, I think could be a lot more robust than it is at current. Is I, I like going into, I love the medical market, but like it's just not adequate for a real medical patient that is trying to use this as, as medicine in a lot of ways. Dream smoking session, three people dead or alive. Okay, love this one. So Ben Franklin. I definitely want to smoke some weed with Ben Franklin. Um, He's got some sick quotes. So it's Ben Franklin, Vincent Van Gogh. They're all going to be dead because like, uh, I'll meet the guys that I want to have lunch with, hopefully. Um, Or Or gals. gals. Or gals, yeah. Also, for what it's worth, bro, guys, all that stuff, I just, it's (laughs) non-gender. I call everyone bro. And so it's Ben Franklin, Vincent Van Gogh, and Anthony Bourdain. Most commonly heard psychedelic myth or assumption that you hear about that is absolutely false. Um, when you take psilocybin, you jump off buildings. and Or like the idea that you are going to take these... Okay, actually, no, there's two. So there's one where it's like the mushroom jumping off the building kind of thing. But then the second thing I would say is that this is probably more of an internal industry thing. But like if you're an asshole and you take psychedelics, I don't think that it's going to make you not an asshole. So <laughs> I also think there's a bell curve. I also think that um, there is an over plastic state that you can get to. And I think that there is this idea, and you see this a lot, there's some hubris in the psychedelic space where there's some preciousness about how much psychedelics you've taken. And I think that at a certain point, you start to get like this weird God complex that um, is really unattractive. I'm going to send that clip to a couple of my friends that I think need to hear that. You're still, <laughs> still going to be an asshole. I've handed you $100 million to start a single project for research. What are you doing? Oh, there's so many. Can I spread? Oh, man. If I had $100 million, I have to do it into one project. One project. You're going to do a good job, though. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I heard a VC and bra with the guy. Not binding. Like, okay. It's not a binding, not a binding offer. <laughs> okay. Okay. One project. So yeah, so I would, I would absolutely put, you know, the hundred million, I would actually dump into cannabis. I would, I would dump it into cannabis research and specifically starting to, and I don't know what this research trial would look like, but it would be, I don't, this is a made up thing. I just can't exist. But like, I would literally dump it into really trying to understand all these different compounds. But if I had to choose one that's ongoing right now, I would absolutely put my money towards what Sue Sisley is working on, which is specifically twofold. It's one, it's the PTSD cannabis with veterans. And then the other piece of it is psilocybin for like end of life, she's really pushing the right to try. And I think anything... So the great thing about right to try is that if you have like a life-threatening illness, you can take advantage of these different different treatment options that are out there. But the cool thing about right to try is that you only have to get through phase one. So I think if I was putting my 100 million, I would be throwing it at somebody that was focusing on right to try that we could do a bunch of phase ones because you can do phase one with like two, two and a half million dollars. And then we could do a bunch of those, get it to, to people. And the thing with the, the life-threatening illnesses is that 
you could, it's kind of, you can, you can put a lot of things in there, right? So borderline, for example, one in 10 people kill themselves if you have borderline as a real diagnosis. Technically, that could be a life-threatening illness. So the 100 million, I would put towards phase one focus for right to try and then start gathering data via the um, the folks that were taking advantage of it via right to try. So that's kind of a bullshit answer because... <laughs> Because I want to try to do a bunch of things with well that. Well played. Well played. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I feel like I'm cheating on this entire game. It's okay. You still get an A on the project. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I'm a contrarian. Oh, so. I like it. Before yeah. we do predictions, okay. we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass onto the next generation, what would it be? Yeah, I would say follow your intuition and do not let the world influence you out of what you want to be focusing on. The example is personal, which is from the early days, I knew I wanted to write. I knew I wanted to focus on mental health. And I knew I wanted to focus on drugs before I even got to high school. I got mishmashed along the way. I got distracted. Um, and so I think you as a child, <laughs> now I'm talking to 10-year-olds. I don't know if they, talk, they watch your... But like, I think about my 11-year-old self all the time. And so this is this would be my advice is... And kids, kids are actually wise as hell because they're not effed by society's stupid rules. And so think about what you wanted to do at 10 and 11. And would your 11-year-old self be proud of what you're doing now? Uh, that I think is something that I, I consider a lot. I, I know my 11-year self. And I don't know, maybe people were dumb at <laughs> 11, so I don't know. But for me specifically, I think about her a lot and I'm like, is what I'm doing in line with what she would think was cool? Um, and I don't know, that's like a weird thing, but I, I always sort of go back to her. And that's that's a product of the mushrooms, to be quite frank with you, which is that I think there's a lot of brilliance in young plastic minds. And I think we lose a lot of that along the way trying to play adults. And I think we're all full of shit. I think that's great advice. Thanks. <laughs> Prediction time. Emma, what is the number one piece of advice or information for those who are quick to point to the dare statement that drugs are bad that prevent them from processing new information about opportunities and possibilities? So, like people, <laughs> I think I think drugs it I I think that everything has benefits and everything has negatives and I think that you need to think critically for yourself. And I think you shouldn't... And this is especially true in this over... There's so much crap on the internet. And I think that in general, like we kind of know a lot more than we give ourselves credit for. And I think we let other people's opinions and things like dare and all that muddy muddy our uh, thinking. And so I think my, my advice in general is that you should be open-minded. You don't, that doesn't mean go out and try a bunch of drugs, but I think trying to make any, and this is true for people where it's like, it's, it's not binary. It's, it's a scale. Everything's a scale. And actually, and Peter Grinspoon met, you guys talked about this on the podcast where it's also about dosing, right? Where it's like, you can have a glass of wine and be fine. If you drink a handle of vodka, you're not going to be fine. And so, so like, we have to think about these things in less of a binary way. And this is true for literally everything that's happening in our world right now. We're so in these like very steadfast camps. And I think it's just an insane way to live because none of us are binary. We're all on these various weird scales and we're constantly evolving. And I think that um, we all need to stay really open-minded. And I think we also need to challenge our own assumptions and 
not get stuck in any belief system you're in currently right now. Assume that what you think now may be very different even in six months. Well said. Kellen? I think that the one piece of advice would be that, like, I think people classify drugs as, like, there's, like, legal drugs where I can go buy, like, cough medicine, and then there's, like, illegal drugs, right? At the end of the day, they're all just different molecules that interact with our, our bodies, right? So I think that like breaking down the barrier between like what society says you're not allowed to take from a drug versus what society says you're allowed to take as a drug. I think that's the one piece of advice I would say is like, just be open-minded as well, kind of piggybacking on what Emma said. What are you going to say, Brian? Yeah, pretty much in agreement there. I I think the fact that this could be more generalized for advice in general is that sometimes we as humans get things wrong and we learn new information and are able to process things and say, okay, what we thought we knew is incorrect. And this new information is factually research accurate, and we should be processing this now as the the metric for understanding. And I'm fearful that so many others are going to struggle with kind of adapting because we've seen across the world some of these other challenges that we face. And I can only hope that as the generations continue to evolve, that we're more open and receptive to new information and new facts, because I think Ben Culper was one who said and said new information Mm -hmm. or new facts is hard to process. And I still think it's one of my favorite lines. It's true. Oh, yeah, that's a good line. That's a really good line. I think, um, like, going back to what we were talking about with incentives, though, is that, like, think about, like, whatever information you're getting, this is the lens which I try to look through, is, like, whatever information you're getting, think about who's pushing that information and think about why. And just, like, follow that chain, right? And if you start to just reverse engineer, like, where things are coming from, you start to see like why and what like why these things are being pushed in these various directions like why is cannabis illegal why are these things illegal and if you start to actually research and educate yourself it's very clear like why um and then you start to really understand and can i think actually start to look through a more pragmatic lens than maybe um if you're just a a headline hopper that's scary if we're gonna be honest though it is so uh, for our listeners they want to get in touch they want to learn more where can they find you so if you Google me, um, there's like my Instagram. I'm, I'm easily to find on the internet, but LinkedIn is fine. I've got a website, aboperformance.com. It comes up if you Google me. I'm on Twitter, Instagram. So reach out if you're interested in chatting. Uh, aboperformance.com. I've got like a little email thing that you can reach out to. Um, but hit me up on any of the channels. Like I'm always looking to connect with like-minded people that are just looking to learn and expand their own thinking about these various spaces. I think it's really important for all of us to continue to educate. And I think the one-on-one connections too with the curious uh, is really important. Yeah, I think so as well. Willing to go up and show notes. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for taking the time. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. 
I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.